Thank you, Olivia. Appreciate that music ministry. What a relief in the weather. I hope you all are feeling as blessed as I am. Somebody that's out in it frequently. It was so hot and humid and just miserable. And then we have this reprieve. And uh, it's a breath of fresh air, to say the least. Well, it's good to be in the household of the Lord, and we appreciate our worship team as Kevin prayed. It's, it's a great joy uh, to come and to worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ and to hail the name of Jesus. God is a great King, and we have an opportunity to praise Him, worship Him, and adore Him. We also have an opportunity to learn from God. He's given us Holy Scripture. Uh, when we come to church, we open our Bibles. We don't use other books because this is from God. These are God's words. They're divine wisdom from the heavens. It didn't come from our IQs or our intelligence or, or our musings. This is the Word of God. And so we go to the Word of God to be fed and encouraged and to grow in our faith. And we are in the book of Second Corinthians We've been studying this book for some time now, and we are on the last chapter. There's 13 chapters, and we are on the last chapter. And the very, probably from about chapter 7 or 8 on, we really get a taste for how tricky and challenging ministry can be. Because Paul has certainly faced his share of challenges. The Apostle Paul, we know, poured his heart and soul out to the Corinthian people. He went there to bring the gospel. The gospel had not been among this people group until the Apostle Paul brought it. And they got to hear the good news of what happened in Jerusalem and that Jesus died but rose for over victory, to have victory over sin and that now people can come into the presence of God and be forgiven for their sins. And the Apostle Paul brings this message And the people embrace it and miraculously souls are saved and a church is planted there in the middle of this geographical area, Corinth. And for a church to be planted means that God's presence is there now. There are people that represent Him as Kevin prayed in John 1.12. There are children of God there now that will grow to be like Him. But nothing about this church plant has been easy. So just to recap, first of all, this people group or this location, Corinth, this city, has been compared to modern day Hollywood because of the decadence, because of the indulgence. And there are a lot of people from all over the world traveling through. It's a heavily traveled area and visited area. And with this traveling, they bring their sin and their decadence. And so this city literally was known for its immorality, had a reputation. And so Paul had to deal with a lot of immorality among these new believers. On top of that, there was the challenge of cultural differences. And Paul would be teaching them. Paul would be serving them. He would be making sacrifices for them. He had certain policies that he used or or principles that he used to minister to other people and to bring the gospel. Trying to be like Christ, he was selfless. He didn't promote himself. He didn't charge money for his teaching. He worked so that he wouldn't have to burden them financially. And because of a different worldview and cultural differences between 
the biblical worldview and the Greco-Roman view, rather than the Corinthians seeing this as an uh, impressive blessing and incredible godliness that he would be so self-denying, uh, they took offense at it. And so he had to wrestle through all of that. And then on top of that, as if that's not difficult enough, into this young gullible church come false teachers. And they attempt to undermine Paul and his words and his authority and lead the people astray for selfish means. And so Paul has had his hands full with this group of people. And I'm always astounded as I read this book that sometimes the best theology doesn't come from from a theological lecture. And there are some. Paul gives those in Scripture. But this theology is coming from Paul responding to these challenges. By Paul trying to set things straight. By Paul responding to his authority being undermined by the false teachers. By Paul responding to the unrepentant sin that's taking place in this church. And all of these challenges, he takes the Word of God to bear and to confront and to win, so that truth will win over and that people will see the light. So we're treated to this. We're treated to this real life, boots on the ground, theology, and, and living out love and devotion to God. With that brief introduction, I want us to go ahead and read chapter 13. It's not very long, so I'm going to read the whole chapter so we can see where the Apostle Paul is headed. But I'm going to camp just in the first two verses. Everything's coming to a head now. Verse 1, chapter 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 
All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Beautiful final words. Let's look at the first few verses here. And the first thing we find that Paul writes is his warning. He writes a warning to them. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others. And I warn them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit. That if I come again, I will not spare them. In chapter 12, Paul shared his fears with us. And that is that when he shows up to Corinthian, to, the, to this church, that he will find that sinners still have not turned to the Lord and repented. He shared that with us in verse 21 of chapter 12. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, the sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practiced. So, as is common, new believers, sometimes we bring our dirt into the church. We're there. God's working on us. But we haven't arrived. And we bring our dirt into the church. And when we do that, obviously that has to be dealt with. And so, that's, that's Paul's concern here. He's already dealt with it. And yet, people did not repent. Some of them. And it's just, it's just not right. It's opposite of what God stands for. It's opposite of the reasons that God plants a church. He told the Ephesians, uh, struggle with the same thing. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of impurity or of any kind of greed because these things are improper for God's holy people. So when we come to a church, when we gather with the saints... There are things that are proper, and Scripture's the guide for that, and there are things that are improper. And as I said in the sermon before this, we know how to sin. We have a nature of sin. We don't have to, taught to, be, we don't have to be taught to sin or to do wrong things. It just comes natural. But we do need to learn how to repent. And scripture teaches us how to repent, to humble ourselves, to acknowledge God's standard and God's rules, to acknowledge that God is right and holy and that we are wrong in our pursuits. But our aim is to become like Christ. To be restored. That's what restoration means. We are being restored to be like Christ. And in order to be like Christ, all along our Christian journey, we're going to have to repent. Because we're going to sin. That's the other thing. Scripture says, don't sin. But if you do, confess your sins. Repent. God knows we are weak vessels. But our journey is one of daily self-denial. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and deny himself daily and follow me. And so any given day, we can experience the joys of the Christian life, the power of God, and the experience of his love and this relationship that we would never have had we not repented. But we also struggle with our weaknesses and our temptations that are before our face. 
And we live a life of working these things out. As Paul put it in another letter, putting off and putting on. You take off the old and you put on the new. That's, that's our lives. That's what we do. That's what discipleship is. That's what it means to be a Christian. That all along, Paul has warned them that they needed to deal with their sin. They weren't taking it seriously enough. They were caught. And they were guilty. And they needed to deal with it, whether it was following after the false teachers or whether it was some kind of immorality. In verse 10, he says, For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So the warning has been, been clear. Paul says, I'm coming. And it's to everybody's advantage if you cleanse your heart personally and you cleanse the church, you repent of your sin, you get right with God, you devote yourself to God. It's to everybody's advantage if that happens before I get there. Because if that's not the case, I will spare none. None will be spared. I will use the full weight of my church authority to bring about restoration in this wayward church. So he gives this warning. Have you ever been uh, warned? Warnings are helpful. Warnings are helpful. My parents used to warn me all the time, whether it's a look or a shake of a finger or something coming at me to get my life straight. And the warning, the idea is, if you don't change your path or your ways, this is what's going to happen. And it's a fair warning. Warnings are great. Scripture is filled with warnings. I thank God that He gives us warnings many times before coming down with hard discipline or judgment. And I think about this warning that Paul gives, and two things immediately came to my mind when I was immersing myself in this passage. One's kind of silly, but I like it. And one is a little more serious. Paul says, I am coming. Well, when I, I picture Paul warning them that I'm coming, I'm coming and I will spare none. Lo and behold, what popped into my head out of nowhere was a western that I watched and loved as a kid, starring Burt Lancaster. Some of you probably don't even know who Burt Lancaster is. Shame on you. And this was called, Tell Them Valdez is Coming. Yeah, yeah, everybody, some of them watched anyway, it was, I loved it. I'm not promoting it as a Christian movie, although it has Christian themes in it, probably accidentally. Anyway, Valdez, he is a Mexican-American sheriff, and he was hoodwinked by the local powerful rancher to kill an innocent man. And Valdez felt terrible about this, and he wanted to make it right. But this powerful rancher got all of his gang together and they took Valdez and they brought him out into the middle of the desert and they tied a wooden cross to his back and left him there to die. But Valdez did not die. Valdez still wanted to make things right. And so he would go, make, he was making his way back. Well, first he armed himself with the armor of God. 
Colt 45 and a few other things. But uh, he arms himself and he goes after the gang that did this to him. And the, 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 the attractive thing or the powerful gripping thing of the, of the drama as it unfolds is that, of course, it's in self-defense because they tried to kill him and there's a twinge of vengeance in there, but it's, it's, tw- it's self-defense. But he would, um, they would try to kill him and he would beat him up or shoot him or wound him, but he would always leave one alive enough to get back to the home base ranch with a message. And he would be barely alive, but he was alive enough, and they would all be like, what happened? And, well, you know, he's bloody, and what happened? And what's... Ooh, Valdez. What about Valdez? What, what, what did he say? He said, tell them Valdez is coming. And that warning incited fear. Boy, you're on the edge of your seat. The rest of the movie. Valdez is coming. It's, it's a warning. And that's what popped into my mind because I'm, I'm thinking Paul's going to get him. If they don't straighten out, you know, this, this fiery apostle, they haven't seen this side of him yet. And they're fixing to see this side of him. It's interesting in, in that movie that you really, if you're presented with those circumstances, you have two options. You've got to fight, and of course, he's the star, so you're going to die. Or... The other option simply is to just absolutely beg for mercy. I am sorry that I shot at you. I'm sorry that I tried to harm you or did harm you. I'm over that. I want to be your friend. I will do nothing but good for you from now on if you spare my life and plead for mercy. There's a lesson in that somewhere, but this is Hollywood's version. I know the the illustration, it breaks down in all different kinds of places. You know, Paul doesn't have a Colt 45. Uh, Valdez had a sawed-off shotgun, a repeating rifle, and a sharps rifle. It was one against many in his defense. But it was that warning. That warning was effective. And it was insightful. And the purpose was to incite fear. You're not going to get away with this. And there's a sense in which the Apostle Paul is saying that. The other thing that immediately came to my mind in this passage is Jesus' warnings. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, that was his, his simple, single message. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus is coming back. And the Bible, in one sense, is one big warning to be prepared. Because when He comes back, and sets things straight, we're all going home wherever that home may be. And for some of us, that home may be the villa in paradise. And for others, it might be the lake of fire. And that's where we will be forever because it is so heinous to sin against this worthy God. And in a sense, because if He's the sovereign God that He says He is, then we have two options. Because we've transgressed Him. We've defiled Him. We've hurt Him by defiling His commandments. And Scripture says we have put the cross on His back. And so we can either fight against Him and inevitably die and pay the consequences, the second death. 
where we can plead for mercy. We know God's going to win. We can plead for mercy. I will not sin against you. I want to be your friend. I am for you now, not against you. And I will live the rest of my life trying to be there for you. It's a plea for mercy. Paul's warning is effective. God gives us warnings. Maybe this is a warning. Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts. I know He spoke to my heart as I studied this passage. There are things, see the thing about sin is, eventually, the way it's designed, and I'll talk about this, it's designed to get us caught. It's designed to destroy us. And so a warning is a wonderful thing. Because it basically means if it, we have a chance to get our lives straight now at this moment before it gets worse. Because sin end is always destruction. And that brings us to the second point here in, this, in these few verses in, in chapter 13. And I want to camp here for a little while, and, if you're, and if, you look, if you're one that looks at my notes, this doesn't line up necessarily with the notes, so don't be upset. Sometimes I write the notes in advance and I change my sermon, and I don't have time to go back. So don't be upset about that. I've warned you, they're not always going to match. That's my warning. But look, I think it's very important for us, especially today, to observe the Apostle Paul's attitude towards sin. Like, what, what's his demeanor? What does he think about sin? He, he says, you won't be spared. Sin, in Paul's eyes, is a very serious thing. It's not something that we can just sweep under the rug. And I know that there are degrees of sin. And I know that there are levels of sin. He's talking about the blatant public sins here. And it's, it's, he's basically saying, if you don't deal with it, I will. I, I will have to deal with it. I will be forced to deal with it. Because the very nature of sin, in and of itself, if you don't do something with it, it takes you over. It destroys. It kills. And so if you're not going to do anything with it, then I'm just going to have to come in, in the weakness, he says, but it's the power of God because he has the authority of God and we'll get to that. Paul's attitude of sin is that, look, there's always consequences. Always consequences to it. And sometimes it tricks us and we think we're getting away with it. We think we've found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But sin by its nature has consequences. It has an aim. It it, it is designed to have a specific effect on any single person. And so Paul's going to address this. And the Bible never stops talking about sin. And I'm glad it doesn't stop talking about sin. I personally need these reminders all the time. Because our tendency is, even as believers, to give ourselves all kinds of grace. It's not that bad. It's not that serious. I'm forgiven. And just because we're forgiven doesn't mean that we are free from suffering the consequences of sin. It's still dangerous. It has horrifying ramifications, not just for individually, for us individually, but for the church and the witness of Christ. Sin will lay us waste. 
And that's what we learn when we read Scripture. Because we see lives that have been laid waste. Beautiful lives laid waste because of sin. What is God's wrath? What is God so upset about? Sin. Rebellion. Pride. He hates it. Why does He hate it? There's no good in it. There's nothing to love about sin from God's perspective. From the Apostle Apostle Paul's perspective, from a biblical perspective, what is there to love about sin in the end? That's joyful at the moment. God recognizes that. He grants that. Sure, that was a pleasure. But now look what you have. Now look what you've done as a result. So Paul always, no matter where he goes, he addresses sin uh, that he encounters. And the biggest threat to any person or any church, and he's dealing on a corporate level here, is sinful life. It is sinful life or false doctrine. Those are the two things that will destroy us. Those are the two main things that will destroy a church. Impurity of doctrine and impurity of life. That's why he can't give the false teaching a pass. Because it leads people away from God instead of to to God. He can't give impurity a pass. Because it leads us away from God instead of to God. <clears throat> Every generation of Christians, we all have our battles. We all have our cultural battles. There are different sins that seem to rise to the surface in, in different generations, and that's what we have to fight against. Those are the big temptations. We have these, these concerns. Uh, we certainly sh- have our share today of our cultural battles. And sometimes we lose sight of the simple message of the gospel. That in the end, it's about you before God and what have you done with your sin? What have you done with the warnings that God has given you? The people that He has brought into your life to share His goodness, to talk about Him, not talk about ourselves, but to talk about Him. We're imperfect. He's perfect. He has a plan. He has a place. He's sovereign. He's in charge. It's all mapped out. God brings these things into our lives. And the message is that Jesus came to save sinners. And we're all sinners, so we need Christ. And He's a good God. And He loves us enough to discipline us. And sometimes that hurt, but hurts, but He is a good God. Here's some great advice that the Apostle Paul gave to his uh, disciple, Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4.16. Absolutely love this verse. And he just flat out says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Your doctrine and your life. Your doctrine and your life. Pure doctrine. Purity of life. Those are the things primarily that we have to keep our eyes on because those are the things that will lift us up and enable us to receive the blessings from God. But they're also the things that if we fail in, they will take us down and destroy us. And I like this because there is a sense, watch your life and doctrine closely, 
Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I like that picture because it reminds us that not just how horrific sin is, but how wonderful it is to master sin. How wonderful it is to say no to sin for that time, or even if it's just one victory. Because when we do that, something is saved. Something is preserved, the Apostle tells us. When you watch out for these things, you are preserving good things. You are saving yourself and others from from terrible trials and tribulations. You are saving possibly others if sin kills, maims, and destroys from that death, from that destruction, from that sickness, from that brokenness, from being ravaged by sin. When we watch our life and we take our doctrine seriously, I appreciate how straightforward Scripture is about these important things. God doesn't beat around the bush about sin at all. I mean, it's just as clear as it can be. That's why even children can understand the gospel. Because sin isn't just something that we know about. It's something that we experience. It's something that we have to fight. Of course, with it comes the guilt and the shame. But one thing, sin is not. It is not harmless. It's never, ever harmless. It's never, ever good. And so when we obey God, we preserve good. That For that time, at least, nothing's going to be torn down or destroyed. So I think it's very, very important for us to notice Paul's sin or his attitude towards sin. Because sin that is not properly dealt with at some level destroys what God builds. It's antithetical to the very work that God is doing on this earth. One of the reasons that I wanted to bring this up is because I think that our temptation as a church, churches these days, our temptation is to get distracted from keeping the main thing the main thing. Uh, what does the church possess that is so powerful, important, and hopeful? It's the gospel. That's what we have that others don't have. We have by God's grace, the veil have been lift, has been lifted and we can see the glories of God. We get glimpses of the goodness. And then we have this personal relationship. And I know it's subjective, but that's what we have. New life. And our distraction, I think, today is to be so culturally relevant that we fail to be culturally relevant. Like, cultural re- relevance has become... This huge thing. In other words, it's a good thing to want to be able to reach the culture, right? We want to be able to reach the lost. We don't want to be written off as as no longer significant. But sometimes the approaches we take to reach the lost are not wise. There was a, I don't I do not recall his name, but about it's been about 15 years ago. I remember reading uh, this guy, and he said that if the church did not reinvent itself, it will cease to exist in 50 years. And what he meant by that is that the church is no longer relevant to the culture. And so the the remedy to feeling irrelevant, like you you can't relate to the culture out there, 
because now you're just like a social club or whatever, was to find out, well, what do the people want? What can we do? How can we change our church so that we're more welcoming, seeker-friendly, whatever you want to call it? And so surveys, and this is evangelicals primarily. This is us. So countless surveys went out to people, mostly the lost, the unchurched. Basically, why don't you come to our church? What is it about it? What keeps you out? What can we do different to get you in? And so they sent these surveys out. And they got answers from unchurched people or maybe Christians, people that were Christians, but they didn't have a high view of church or whatever. And they got answers. And the advice and the wisdom they got was to make the church more comfortable for them. And so what you have, they wanted, um, they wanted less rules and regulations. They didn't want to be accountable to other people. They wanted their freedoms. They wanted a more casual atmosphere. In other words, make it more like the world that I live in. Uh, they wanted pastors that told stories and were not um, as conf- confrontational about sin and things. They wanted catchier music and tunes that was more like what they were used to, um, more cultural to them. And don't sing about the blood and all that stuff. It's, it's kind of a, offensive here. So basically, they, they wanted to, the church to reinvent itself in a way that a sinner could come in and not feel uncomfortable, feel very welcomed. Now, it is important that a church is culturally re- relevant. That's not my point. My point is that Well, what makes us culturally relevant? Because that attempt has proven uh, to fail. First of all, as we looked at last week, the church is not going to fail to exist. There's one thing that's going to outlast everything, every institution, and that's the church because God said. God's on the throne of the church. He's, he's the head, Christ is the head of the body. He's the brains, the operation. He's not going to fail in his mission to redeem souls and bring them to the Father as a prize. That will happen. So when somebody says the church isn't going to exist, and whenever I read that, I always just, hmm. Now, it's possible, very possible, and it happens that the church in a particular place can cease to be relevant. If, if our hearts grow cold, like some, uh, if our hearts grow cold, and we put God on hold, like some of the churches in Revelation, where you, you, he basically says, you used to love me, but you don't anymore, and you're a church. Because the presence of God can, can cease, not be felt in that geographical location or these churches, And the church can be what we would call dead or ineffective. That's true. But that's just that church or that group of churches or that state of churches or that nation of churches. It's not the church. The church is bigger than any individual. It's bigger than any single church. God's the head of it. So the church will prevail. God. So first of all, God's purposes will be served. So I'm not threatened by that. I'm personally threatened by the fact that I might... Event, have a, could have a Christian life that's ineffective and that's not serving as salt and light. I need to watch my life and watch my doctrine 
to make sure that does not happen. But Christ rules over His church. We don't ever want to think that the kingdom of God can't move on without us. And sometimes, some of the things I hear from, coming from Christians is this idea that the kingdom is shot. It's in peril without us. Or without America. America's not the kingdom of God. It's just not. And the kingdom of God will thrive. And we miss out. That's what happens. We miss out or we get judged when we don't obey God. But the kingdom of God is very much alive. The kingdom of God reigns in the hearts of man. As we learned this morning in Sunday school, it's an internal change. You can see it on the outside, but it's an internal change. That's the kingdom of God, and that change can be found all over the world at any given place or any given time. So I'm not convinced that trans reinventing, reinventing ourselves to look more worldly is the best way to reach hearts. I think the best way to reach hearts is to preach the gospel, is to preach the message that Jesus came from heaven on earth preaching those very words, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then unfold the mysteries of the scripture. And we get to see things that we didn't know existed. We get to relate to a God. We didn't understand how good he was. We didn't know that he could bring us through things. We didn't know how forgiving and gracious he was. And that we can come to him time and time and time again saying, I blew it, I blew it, I blew it. I'm so sorry. And yet he's still there for us and still loves us. And he knows all the junk in our hearts. He knows all our thoughts and he still loves us. He invited us into the kingdom and adopted us before we cleaned ourselves up. He did it when he knew what kind of transgressions we would commit throughout our Christian life. The ways that we would dishonor him. That's how we stay effective and powerful in any culture, in any challenge, is by watching our life and doctrine, by taking sin seriously, by heeding the warnings of Christ, not changing our sound system or, or the, our preaching, and the message, things like that, the lighting, the tone. Those things can be helpful, but it's the message of the gospel. The other flaw, I think, in, in our attempts to be culturally relevant, and again, it's something we need to be, is that when, when you take the lowest common denominator of spirituality, what kind of answers do you expect to get? So in other words, we're asking people, the surveys went out, and we're asking people that really don't have an interest in God to tell us what it would take for them to be interested in God. What should a church look like? We're asking the wrong people. So if you ask your kids, say you're, you're three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve-year-olds, how can we reinvent this family? What can we do to make this family more comfortable for you? I don't want homework. Take that off the list. I don't want a bedtime. Take that off the list. I want more candy and less veggies. Take those off the list. Now, what, what are you going to get? Do, do we go to our children and ask them, what, what can we do to be a better family? 
That'd be a, that would be a mistake. Now, of course we can have input, and we'll do it if they give us the right answer. We can read the Bible more, Mom and Dad. Right, we will do that. We will implement that. But I think it's wrong when you go to the long, lowest common denominator. The surveys weren't given to mature Christians who actually understand Scripture and what the Bible says. Well, what, how should we conduct our church services? We should do it according to the way Scripture says and conform ourselves to that, not conform Scripture to our individual comfort zones. And unfortunately, there are churches that have conformed in this way, in the wrong direction, and therefore actually become ineffective and not effective. That's not the hope of the church. The way the church confronts any moral crisis or any cultural crisis is with the hope of a changed life, with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church, there's a, there's a Latin word or combination of words that the church has kind of stood by since the time of the Reformation. Ecclesia Reformata and Semper Reformanda. And that means the church reformed and always reforming. So is there ever time for us to change? Yes, if we need we, we change our doctrine, and it's not change our doctrine, we, approve our, we improve our doctrine. We, we want to study the scriptures and make sure we're as accurate as possible always. Because what happened during the Reformation is the church got off in its doctrine. And the whole purpose was to reform it, to get us back to scripture. So we always want to be getting back to scripture. But we also want to be reforming our hearts. Sadly, the time that that phrase was coined, that Latin phrase, there were a lot, the churches were filled, and the people were going through the motions, and they were singing the songs, and their hearts were stone cold towards God. They did not love him. And so the emphasis was you can't just have pure doctrine. You can't just have right doctrine. You have to have a heart that's on fire, a heart that's zealous to live it and to love God. One is not enough. So we want to constantly be reforming ourselves and, and conforming ourselves to the image of Christ in this way. Matthew fifteen eight, Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that is a danger to all of us. So Paul doesn't take the surveys. He's, got, he's, he's challenged with this real-life situation of, a church under assault, these young, gullible believers. He doesn't take surveys. He doesn't ask them, what can I do to make you more comfortable? He says, I'm coming. You know the truth. I told you the truth. You have the scriptures. You know what you need to do. And that's what the church needed. Just clear exposition, clear warning, clear scripture to react to because that's what produces holiness the pure gospel is what changes a life in crisis or a people in crisis a church in crisis a culture in crisis tell them Valdez is coming you have been warm in essence he's saying 
the time of grace is over. The time of mercy is over. You know, we've read through this whole letter. Paul has been so gentle and kind. I mean, just falling over himself not to offend them. But he's saying, look, enough is enough. Because now it has gotten to the point where if I neglect to confront you, I am doing you harm. Not good. What is our attitude towards sin this morning? Is it a biblical attitude? Or is it our friend? Are there parts of it that we have not quite yet convinced ourselves that are destructive? Church life is filled with challenges. And the thing that makes us most vulnerable as New Covenant Fellowship is sin. There are lots of challenges out there. We'll have to navigate those. But it's sin. That's what makes us the most vulnerable as individuals. It makes our relationships vulnerable, our homes vulnerable, our jobs vulnerable, our churches vulnerable. That's what keeps us from God. The consequences to sin are real. And when we begin to look at sin as something, when I look at it and I see the truth, if I indulge in you, you will lay me waste. You will destroy me. You will tear down the things that are good in my life that I love. Why would I want anything to to do with you and resist? God has not left us by ourselves to fight this battle. We have the resource of his Holy Spirit. We have the resource of his word. That's what the Apostle Paul is using. Because he himself was suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempered, tempted. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 2.18. He knows, he understands the struggle. It's real. What is the saying? The struggle is real. He, he gets it. He knows that. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. The psalmist says, do not let me stray from your commandments. I love you with, I seek you with all my heart. And I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We have resources. It's hard, but God is there for us. So as a kingdom outpost, as a church, we need to to maintain that attitude that the sin is enemy and God is our friend. Sin is our enemy and God's word is our friend. Sin will destroy us and God's word will rebuild us and restore us and give us the desires of our heart that line up with God's standards of righteousness and holiness. Sin has to be dealt with on some level. We've been warned. Tell them Valdez is coming. May God bless the preaching of his word.